Sometimes we need things really simple. The world, this life, and even our faith can all be so complex and confusing at times. We just need it all summarized, streamlined, synopsized, or simplified for us. Just in one area, think of the fact that our printed Bibles are usually between 1,000 and 3,000 pages long. Like our holy scriptures, God's story, and our guidebook to living life God's way consists of 1,189 chapters, 23,145 verses, and around 750,000 words. That's a lot of material. And, and we can feel lost in it or overwhelmed by it. Even though we know that all Scripture is profitable for us and every word is vital, sometimes we just need to have it all boiled down to what we most need to hear. And praise God, there are definitely key places in Scripture where our Lord does just that. One such place is found in Matthew 7. But you can open up to it this time. You can grab a Bible from the seat if you don't have one of your own. Matthew chapter 7. I recently started wrapping up a six-year-long sporadic journey through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gave us some of his most famous and foundational teachings. Things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, or the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, on anger, or lust, or revenge, and more, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. No one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds. Consider the lilies. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then recently, judge not that you be not judged. Take the log out of your own eye. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And so much more. Now if we were Jesus' disciples, sitting in front of him on that day, listening to these words and these concepts for the first time, I suspect our minds would have been spinning by this point. Right, so much incredible truth, such powerful words. But where do we even begin? How? It's like the, the saying of trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. 
And yet, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and limitations, and he knows what we need. So right at this point, he breaks it down and offers a a rule of thumb for us, if you will. Something short, catchy, simple, and yet profoundly powerful and deep. Look at verse 12 with me in chapter 7, where he says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This, of course, has come to be known as the golden rule. It's a a rule that that summarizes the relational and ethical lifestyle of Jesus' disciples. How can we tell day by day, moment by moment, if we're following Jesus' way of life? What's the bottom line? Keep this in mind. So whatever you do, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And we're going to look more closely at this verse, as well as the two verses that follow it today. And I believe that we'll see that living Jesus' way, what it demands and what it offers to us. First, the demand. Okay, The, the way of life that Jesus demands is to follow his golden rule. The way of life Jesus demands is to follow his golden rule, the golden rule above all others. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. One scholar calls this a remarkably flexible ethical principle. Super flexible. And it's so, so applicable into every single one of our lives as all of us interact with other people nearly every day of our lives, treating them in certain ways for better or worse. Like we can never plumb the depths of potential applications. And yet it's simple enough for even all the kids to understand it well. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, or whatever you'd have them do, want them to do, or like them to do. Now, we are all naturally very self-focused people with many wants or desires every day, even in the midst of relationships with other people, with spouses, children, friends, church people. We're often only thinking of what they can do for us, how we benefit from them. But in order to snap us out of this self-focus, Jesus doesn't tell us to just stop thinking these ways. He actually suggests that we're not taking this self-focus far enough. Hey, we, we should be thinking of what we want others to do for us. But then don't stop there. Either hoping or asking or pressuring others to do so. No, we then flip it upside down. And we say, okay, this is what I want from you, but instead, I'm going to do this for you. It's as John Stott explains, 
Self-advantage often guides us in our own affairs. Now we must also let it guide us in our behavior to others. All we have to do is use our imagination, put ourselves in the other person's shoes, and ask, how would I like to be treated in that situation? It's normal to be inclined towards your own self-advantage and self-benefit. Like Self-love is a powerful force in all of us. Now we take that usually sinful inclination and we use it for good, refocusing it toward other people. We need to really retrain our minds not to ignore our wants or desires, but to redeem them for good. And notice, Jesus doesn't say we should treat others this way most of the time or in most areas of life. He says, whatever. Or, as other translations say, in everything do to others this way. That means this command encompasses every area of life and every time we relate to others. It includes the way that we treat our friends and our relatives, our neighbors and our enemies, our classmates, our teachers or students, our bosses, employees or coworkers our customers, clients, or merchants, our patients, or doctors, our public servants, or leaders. Like it should impact husbands with their wives, wives with their husbands, parents with their kids, kids with their parents, or with their brothers and sisters. It should affect how we spend our time, the gifts we give, the acts of kindness we show, it, should, it definitely should inform how we speak to others or about others. Ouch. It would include people we interact with both in person and online, virtually. Double ouch. And it can be applied to basically any life situation under the sun. Like, think about it. If, if we were grieving over some sadness, would we want to be comforted? Yes. If, if we were rejoicing in God's goodness, would we want others to join in? If we were feeling overwhelmed by life's craziness, wouldn't we love some help? If others were, are talking to us, wouldn't we want to be addressed with respect and kindness? Wouldn't we want to be listened to and understood? Would we want others to believe the best about us? In any season, wouldn't we love to know that others are praying for us? Then, if that's how you wish to be treated, go and do likewise. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Let's consider our, our motives, though. Because Jesus doesn't say to do to others so they end up doing what you wanted all along. Right? 
That would just be the motivation of manipulation. Neither does Jesus say to do to others as they do unto you. That would be the motivation of either fairness, obligation, or negatively, vengeance. And of course, he doesn't say to to do to others before they do unto you. Otherwise, our motivation would be totally based on fear. This isn't advice for getting what we want, or getting even, or heading off others' responses to us. In fact, Jesus doesn't mention the other person's response or actions at all. This really is meant to be an expression of love, of selfless love, regardless of how they respond. The other place that Jesus talks about something defining the point of the law and the prophets is where he says to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is at the heart of the law. And these commands don't contradict. The main way that we love our neighbors, you could say, is by following this basic rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So so do you love the Lord? And do you love your neighbor genuinely from the heart? So if you don't, 1 John 4 says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So so may our motive here be love. Notice, Jesus' exact words here in Matthew 7.12 are different than they are often understood because he gives us a positive command of things to do, but we most often treat this as a negative command of things to not do, right? And many other religious leaders and philosophers have made this kind of point, something like, do not do anything to anyone else, that you wouldn't want done yourself. So if if you don't want to be robbed or lied to or hit or bit or things like that, then don't steal, lie, hit, or bite them. Now, these negative things are certainly implied here, but they are not the main point. After all, if Jesus had only given us the negative rule, do not do to others, it would mean we could obey his command and literally do nothing for anyone else, ever. Pastor Sam Storms explains, the positive form is far more active and demanding. If you like being loved, love others. If you enjoy being treated fairly, be fair to others. If you like receiving help, help others, etc. The positive is more searching and substantive. And Jesus says here that if, if we follow this golden rule, we actually follow the whole Bible. That's the gist of it. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is shorthand for all of Scripture in Jesus' day. 
And sometimes you might worry. Like there are, there are so many commands in the Bible, so much that God has to say to us. How could we ever keep all the commands and rules in the Bible? That's a good question. Because, spoiler alert, you can't. You can't do it. However, even just to know God's law and the right ways for us to live, the golden rule is super helpful. It sums it all up, moment to moment. Whenever we are following it, we are following God's law. The point of God's law is love, but the practice of love is this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, I have to admit that I can't just hold up a standard of this is the right way to live and expect anyone to care, let alone be inspired to attempt to follow it or live by it. Now listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the fact that we can't live up to God's standard. We can't live up to this. We can't just hear what is good and then go and do what is good on our own. Our problem is much deeper than that. It's on a heart level. In our natural state, we hate the demands that God places upon us. That's why we don't keep God's law and we consistently break this golden rule. Like Romans 8, 7 puts it, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And since God's law comes from God, what it ultimately means is that we resent and hate God himself. Long story short, we don't just need to keep a rule. We need a Savior who saves us from all our rule-breaking and our failures to follow his ways. We need God to give us a heart transplant, to have him exchange our cold, hard, sinful heart with a heart that's willing to do his will. Now, you may have wondered as you hear this, this verse seems pretty rule-focused. It's like law instead of grace. But, but while it's true that this verse focuses on our behavior, it's actually a totally unbiblical false choice when we set up grace and law as opposites. Yes, we are no longer under law, but we're under grace. That's biblical. But at the same time, when we receive the gospel of grace by faith in Christ, that very same gospel then places grace-based demands upon our lives. As followers of Jesus, we are truly meant to obey Jesus as Lord. But we don't obey to gain his love or favor anymore. We obey out of his love and favor. And that makes the world of difference. 
So have you been loved and, and graciously saved by Jesus from sin and death and hell? If so, then you should have a Holy Spirit-infused desire to follow what he says, to follow him. We should never do to others in order to, to do enough good to outweigh our bad in life. We don't follow a golden rule in order to earn our place on the golden streets of heaven. No, we follow Jesus in doing to others because of what he has already done to and for us. And we love him. So we follow. Like, do you get it yet? The golden rule is really all about treating others the way Jesus treated us, with grace. Yes, it's a, a rule or a demand, but it's not a heavy one. It's a happy one. Consider, Jesus allowed others to treat him in the worst possible ways so that he could treat us in the best possible ways. He went through hatred, opposition, condemnation, injustice, mockery, pain, and death in order to give us love and welcome and forgiveness, mercy, encouragement, healing, and life. Like, that's the gospel for you. How could we receive all of that from Jesus and then turn around and do anything otherwise? And if you haven't yet received all that, I encourage you to open your heart to Jesus today. All the morality and good deeds and doing your best to follow a golden rule won't do you a lick of good if you don't have Christ living and dying in your place. Your, again, your primary problem stems from your sinful heart that has despised the Lord. You will never have fully right relationships with other people or treat them the way you really ought to treat them until you have a right relationship with God. That has to come first. And only then are we delivered from our self-tyranny. And we begin to see others in a new light, in a new way. As sinners, like ourselves, who are in desperate need of grace. So therefore, I urge you today, turn from your self-centered and self-destructive sinful ways and turn to the way and the truth and the life and accept him as your Lord and Savior. And if Jesus is already your Lord, you cannot pick and choose which of his teachings you're going to follow. Which is why what Jesus says next is so stunning. Because almost everyone would readily accept the golden rule as good teaching. 
Many people would even claim to admire Jesus for teachings like it. You may know how Gandhi famously claimed to like Christ, but not like Christians. He also reportedly led a prayer meeting every evening at 7 o'clock in which he read this very Sermon on the Mount aloud, daily, using Jesus' words as he would words from any wise guru. And I imagine he must have loved verse 12. But what must he have thought about verses 13 and 14? Look at them. Because enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now just stop and think how shocking of a claim that is for Jesus to make. He's essentially claiming that apart from him, there is no life, hope, or heaven. None apart from him. And that if you reject him, you choose to walk the path that leads to eternal death. Just imagine, again, someone like Gandhi saying something like this. Sam Storms pictures it this way. He says, let's suppose that Gandhi was invited to lecture before the world, at which time he would briefly summarize the essence of his beliefs. In the course of his lecture, he says, My friends, I declare unto you that it is essential for you to treat one another with love and self-sacrifice, always seeking to do unto them what you in turn would like done unto yourselves. Pausing to allow time for the applause and shouts of, Amen! You tell him, Gandhi! To subside, he then resumes. Furthermore, let it be known that I, Mohandas K. Gandhi, am the only way to salvation, and that if you do not believe in me and in me alone, if you do not follow and worship me and me alone, if you do not embrace the way of Hinduism and Hinduism alone, you will suffer eternal condemnation and punishment in hell. The absurdity of such claims on the part of any man, unless, of course, this man also happens to be God, is self-evident. And yet, notwithstanding the fact that this is precisely the claim of our Lord Jesus Christ, Gandhi and many others as well insist on admiring Jesus while rejecting Christianity. And my point is simply this. If you cannot accept and admire this Jesus who claimed to be the exclusive path to eternal life, you cannot with consistency accept and admire him for teachings that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And that's how verses 13 and 14 relate to verse 12. Why the golden rule is followed by the golden gate. They're inseparably linked because they both are inseparable from Jesus and who he is. You cannot truly accept and admire him and not accept all that he says and claims. So we have to make the choice. Do we want to follow the way of Jesus or don't we? It's a demanding way of life. 
and yet it is the only way to life. See, the way to life that Jesus offers is to enter his narrow gate or to follow his narrow path. The the way to life Jesus offers is to enter his narrow gate. Read it again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I ask again, do you want to follow the way of Jesus? Because he never promises us an easy, carefree life. On the contrary, he says his way is a narrow gate to enter and a hard path to tread. Last week in Rochester, New York, there was a concert that ended in tragedy. I don't know if you saw it on the news. Concert goers thought that they heard gunshots. It wasn't actually, but they thought they heard them. Panicked and stampeded. People died in the rush of the crowd trying to escape. I want you to imagine that you were there, but that you knew this was going to happen in advance. So as you approach the concert venue, there's these big gates, this huge crowd entering, and you enter as well. Like once you're in, you look back, and there's there's no one leaving the place. After all the The fun's in here. People have no idea the danger that's looming. So the flow of traffic is all one way. If you tried to go against the crowd and exit, really you'd have to find another way out, a side gate or a back door or something. It might be hard to find. People might be confused. Why are you leaving? The show's barely begun. You know what's coming. You know the show is going to end in disaster. So what the crowd is doing in that moment really is irrelevant. You know you've got to get somewhere else. Listen, the world all around us is rushing as a throng headlong into disaster. People are intoxicated on pleasure, addicted to vice, obsessed with wealth, numbed by triviality, distracted by technology, consumed with work, sedated by ease, blinded by pride, corrupted by sin, and tragically destined for hell. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says that the the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. If people you care about are part of this crowd, do you care enough about them to warn them? They may hear you, they may not. They may think you narrow-minded, or even insane. But underneath 
all the, the downcast faces and the, the forced smiles and the mindless scrolling of people. This is what is really going on in the world. People are on an easy path to destruction. My main question for you today is, are you? This path won't demand much from you, for now at least. You and all your friends can fit on it together, no problem. Most people are going that way anyway, so you can fit right in. Be a part of something bigger than yourself. Be on the right side of history. People are open-minded and totally inclusive here. All are welcome, no matter what. Plenty of room for diversity of opinions, laxity of morals. There's, there's great love or success or wealth or popularity to be found here along the way. This path's a party. It's a parade. Like who wouldn't want to be a part of it? And the gate to get on this path is wide, so you don't actually have to leave anything behind to get on it. There's no luggage limits. You can even hold on to your sins if you want to. You don't need to learn hard things, pursue holiness, cultivate righteousness. It's easy. Young people, listen up. Certain classes or programs today that you may be in are basically designed to indoctrinate you and get you firmly on this broad road. It's easy to learn, easy to join. In his autobiography, C.S. Lewis described the way that he, as a youth, he broadened his mind, saying, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. I passed into higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. But sadly, while this way won't demand much at first, it will cost you your life and your soul one day. It's the literal highway to hell. And living easy, loving free will screech to a stop. No matter what ACDC sings. So is the, the wide gate really the one you want to enter? The easy way the way you want to go is destruction, the destination you want to aim for, and the many, the crowd you want to join. Some will hear these verses and think that they must mean that most of humanity will not be saved. I mean, verse 13 where it says, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. It seems clear enough. And it's true that many, many people will reject Christ. But Jesus also says in the very next chapter that many will be at heaven's feasts. 
And in Revelation 7, God's redeemed make up a great multitude that no one can number, which tells us that many, many people will also be saved. As for what percentages or numbers will be saved or not, it's best to leave that with God. In fact, in Luke 13, someone asked Jesus directly, Lord, will those who are saved be few? You know what his response was? He said, strive to enter through the narrow door. He didn't really answer their question. He more said, worry about yourself. Only God knows how many are going to be saved. Leave it to him. And in the starkest of contrast to verse 13, the only alternate route is the narrow gate and the hard way. It says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So instead of the, the party parade over on Broadway, there's this little door off to the side. This gate is only admitting one person at a time. Maybe it's like a turnstile. Right? No one can enter as a crowd. With your family, with your church, with your nation, you cannot enter the kingdom on the coattails of any other believers. You must choose whether to go through on your own volition. And you don't know what companions are going to join you on the other side for sure. Not too many people appear to be on the road. It's comparatively deserted. You will likely be a part of minority, perhaps a despised minority. The entrance is not bright or lit up. It's easy to miss. It doesn't look fun or promising. Like if you peek through, the terrain looks rough, scary, not going to be easy to travel. There may be some suffering in store for now. It's not the path you choose to take a hike on or the road you go on a road trip on. The path will be vigorous, will require vigilant attention. Also, it's a narrow opening, so you must leave everything else behind when you enter your sin, your attachments to this world, your affiliation with the crowd. The road's boundaries are clearly marked, so it's going to be you're going to be restricted by God's truth. You won't get to just live according to your desires or pleasures or passions anymore. Your life will be constrained and defined by what is right and true and good. As Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it, still more difficult and still straighter and narrower is the realization that I have to leave the way of the world outside. We're all familiar with this in practice and in our Christian lives. It's one thing to leave the crowd but it's a very different thing to leave the way of the crowd. And yet this is the only gate, the only road that leads to life, to true life, abundant life, eternal life. Now, I don't need to say this, but you will not hear this at your school or on the news or on TikTok today. It is extremely unfashionable, non-PC, way too absolutist or fanatical. People actually prefer to be uncommitted today, checking off the no religion box. 
Or we prefer many choices or paths. Like whichever way you choose is best for you. But Jesus disagrees. It's not me saying this. Jesus is saying this. He places a, a distinct choice before us. Him or nothing. As Stott says, Jesus cuts across our easygoing syncretism. And just because some of us have a hard time seeing Jesus as the only way to life doesn't make it any less true. It's either true or it isn't. What do you believe? There's only one choice to make with two possible paths or options, two possible outcomes, narrow and wide, easy or hard, many or few, death or life. Now, don't get depressed by all this. Because not all is dull or morbid on the narrow path. There are amazing joys, loves, freedoms, and peace experienced by believers even now. Jesus' way of life isn't described only as hard. It's also called an easy yoke and a light burden. And the life that Christ is freely offering here is truly beyond our wildest imaginations. It's wonderful. Yet we may still question, why would God make the way to him and the way to life a hard road? I don't know the full answer to that. But I expect the glories of our destination will be all the greater for the hardships we face now. Like, we just got back from a, a trip to Florida. Sorry for all of you who didn't. <laughs> but after driving many hours and leaving behind snow and cold for months, like the destination was that much more spectacular. Right? And, and so, because of what we left behind and what we went through, it was even more so. Now, consider that on a cosmic level, an eternal level. How much greater will it be? And Lloyd-Jones adds, the Christian way of life is difficult. It is not an easy life. It is too glorious and wonderful to be easy. It means living like Christ himself. And that is not easy. That was his life, a straight and thorny road, but he trod it. And your privilege and mine is the privilege of coming out of the world and entering into this life and following him all the way. And that's the thing. Like, that's the key. Jesus is on the hard road. Like, he not only walked it during his earthly life, he'll be there with you even now, all along the way, no matter what. Despite the dangers and toils and snares that we face, his grace will lead us safely home. And he alone will make the difficult journey entirely worthwhile. Really, he is the narrow gate. He is the way to life himself. When he says, enter by the narrow gate, he's saying to enter the kingdom through him. 
In John 10, using the metaphor of the gate on a sheep pen, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That life is found only through the narrow gate. So how do you enter it? By believing in Jesus listening to his voice, and following after him. The gospel always calls for a decision, a choice to be made. Jesus doesn't ask to simply be admired or appreciated. He asks to be followed. Follow me. So will you decide now to follow Jesus Even if none go with you, no turning back. Stott sums up, says, To recapitulate, there are, according to Jesus, only two ways, hard and easy. There is no middle way. Entered by two gates, broad and narrow, there is no other gate. Trodden by two crowds, large and small, there is no neutral group. Ending in two destinations, destruction and life. There is no third alternative. Everybody resents being faced with the necessity of a choice, but Jesus will not allow us to escape it. So as you face the two gates you could enter, the two roads diverging before you, enter Jesus' narrow gate. Take the road less traveled by. And it will make all the difference. Though it may not be easy to find or easy to trod, the door is open to you. The way is beckoning. The words Jesus says here are both an exhortation and an invitation. Enter. Enter by the narrow gate. In his grace and love, Jesus made a way. He is the way. So you should enter, though you won't be forced. But you also can enter. And then once you do, once you're on the narrow road, following after him, then you will be more than ready to do to others as Jesus has done to you.